You're listening to the Mining and Energy Union podcast. Yes, indeed you are. I'm Tim Brunero. Well, when Anthony Albanese was elected in 2022, we all had big expectations he would tilt the system in favour of working families as opposed to big business, where it's been for so long. Well, some laws have been passed and some are still being drawn up. And I thought you'd like to get the lowdown uh, on what's happening from the National Legal Director of the mighty MEU, Adam Walkerton. I'm sitting here in his office with my microphone at MEU HQ, and I'm pumped to find out more. G'day, Adam. G'day, Tim. Thanks for having me. Let's break it down. Adam, you say we can kind of break it into four tranches or stages or bills or bits of new workplace laws. The first tranche was passed late last year. The second tranche is moving through Parliament and the third and fourth are sort of still coming down the pipe. Uh, Let's start with what's already passed. I think that this is going to actually kick off on the 6th of June 2023, so in a couple of months. The first big thing that's already happened is multi-employer bargaining. What is it? The first part of the first tranche that you spoke of is the Secure Jobs and Better Pay Bill, which passed Parliament in December of last year. There was a fair bit in that bill. Some of the elements, which I'll speak about, have already taken effect. And there are other parts, the multi-enterprise bargaining part and the changes to the bargaining laws that you spoke about, which kick off on the 6th of June of this year, as you said. You asked me a question about the multi-enterprise bargaining stream. There's a fair bit to say about that. The first point I'd make is that it is a very significant change when you consider where we were, where we have been, sorry, over the last 20 to 30 years. Because you'd know that in the late 80s and, and 90s, the employers and the right, the political right, were pushing for individual contracts, individual statutory contracts, which removed collective bargaining, diluted the powers of the independent umpire and sought to marginalise trade unions. Um, That culminated with work choices and and individual contracts where employers were putting it on the table of a prospective employee and demanding that the employee sign an individual contract as a condition of getting their employment. And so we've gone from that system of individual contracts, which were designed to remove collective bargaining, undermine labour standards and remove unions to a situation where we're on the cusp of multi-enterprise bargaining, which allows unions to bargain with more than one employer, whether that's by reference to a certain geographical region, so miners in a certain part of the country, or a number of different competitors in in other industries. There's obviously a lot of detail in terms of um, of the multi-enterprise bargaining stream, but I thought I'd just make that point to start with. It's a very significant change when you put it in that context. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it, that the Howard era AWAs, which was a direct contract with an employer and an employee, it's so different to a multi-enterprise bargaining stream, which is where you've got multiple enterprises coming together, bargaining with their workforces, getting it done, and they're set and forget for three or four years. And what we've got in the middle is sort of, what we've got at the moment is sort of something in the middle, isn't it, where you've got individual enterprises that enter into agreements with their workforces. It'll be fascinating to see how that pans out, how other industries use it, how the MEU uses it. Watch this space, I think, is what you're saying there. Let's talk about sexual harassment because what we saw past last year could really, really help people who are in that position. The government should be commended in the first part, the the tranche that passed last year, because there was a clear focus on improving um, the position of women at work 
and gender equity more broadly. There are a number of measures, Tim, not all which are directly relevant to my union. So for example, provisions were made in respect of improving the capacity for an equal pay order to be made, which is something that uh, won't be directly relevant to my union. But that's where women and men are working alongside each other and they're for different pay. Correct. Yeah. So there's or industries where there's heavily female dominated industries which are being paid well below um, what they should be paid. So uh, that's a really good thing. But you raise sexual harassment and sexual harassment has been a huge issue in the mining industry over the past couple of years. There's been a number of high profile instances of people being sexually harassed and it is it is obviously part of the reform package um, included an express prohibition in the Fair Work Act to prohibit sexual harassment, which is a good thing. Also, I think the most important or one of the more important things is that as part of the bill that, that passed last year, there's now an avenue uh, people who have been sexually harassed to seek redress. And commonly when someone comes to you and tells you are being sexually harassed, there's a question which is, well, where do you go to get redress? Do you contact the safety regulator do you, work cover. Do you, that's right. Or a court. Or a court, which is expensive, Tim, and very lengthy. And unless that person has support of their union who's prepared to back them in, it's beyond most ordinary people to front up and stump up and pay for a lawyer, particularly in circumstances where if they lose, Tim, they're up for a cost order. Mm. It's a very daunting prospect. So court is a, is a challenge um, for a lot of people. Um, and so do you then make a complaint um, to the internal company um, pr- process. So as the point I'm trying to make is that there's, there's been that sort of, not a, not a clear path, a user-friendly path for people to seek redress, whereas the bill that was passed last year allows a person who's been sexually harassed to make an application and seek support from the Fair Work Commission. And that's where you do a lot of your work, where you're comfortable, where you know the processes, and so if a member comes to you and says, I've been sexually harassed, under this legislation, presumably they're going to have, hopefully, a much easier run of it because you can grab it, Go take that action, low-cost jurisdiction, get it done. Also, what I thought was interesting when it comes to gender equity more broadly, not that it's only women who are sexually harassed, but um, it is a big issue for women, is flexible work. Because if you've got someone at home who's a child or has a disability or is over 55 and needs support, you've been able to say to your employer, look, can you let me go off early on Tuesdays at 3.30 or... Mm. Can I do a different shift on a Friday? Because, But they've been under no obligation to, you know, uh, help you out with that. Now they'll ha- sort of have to. Now you can sort of go and go to the Fair Work Commission and get them to adjudicate. That, that's right, Tim. And that's, that's this capacity, in my view, a right isn't much good unless it's enforceable. And the change you're pointing to, the flexible work change, really means that prior to this change, which formed part of the bill that passed Parliament last year, a person could make the request for a flexible working arrangement and their employer could say no and the person had nowhere to go. And a really significant part of the bill that's passed is that person who, who has those attributes is a, a parent with school-aged children, is someone who's over the age of 55, who has a disability, there, there are other examples. That person can make the request for a flexible working arrangement, their employer is required to consider it, and at the end of that process, if the employee remains dissatisfied with their response, the employee can go to the Fair Work Commission, can step in and do their job um, and be the umpire and determine whether it is fair and appropriate that the employer is required to offer some flexibility. That's a fantastic one. Another 
part of that first tranche or first bit or first group of laws that have already been passed was around bargaining in this issue where employers have been able to threaten to terminate agreements. Tell us how that was working and, and why that's such a good thing, because it sounds good to me. There was a decision in about 2015, which was a game changer in respect of the capacity of an employer during bargaining to terminate an agreement. And how that was used was the employers would threaten workers um, and their union during bargaining that unless the employees accepted the employer claim or unless the workers and the union um, dropped off on their own claims that the employer would threaten to terminate the agreement. And what that would mean is that if the agreement was terminated, the employees would go back to the award. And that undid, um, in some places, eight or nine rounds of bargaining where over three or four year period, over eight successive cycles, workers have bargained with their employer for better standards. And that threat of termination, we experienced it ourselves at Port Kembla Coal Terminal. Um, we saw it happen at AGL Loyang Power Station. Um, we saw it happen in, in other uh, workplaces, mining energy workplaces. And it was uh, a, really, a really big issue because it was a further tool um, that the employer used to reduce pain conditions. In effect, the employer could spit the dummy, take their bat and ball and go home, but the employees really couldn't do the same thing. So it was another advantage that employers had over employees and their representatives, which are often unions. Let's quickly move on to another thing that's coming down the pipe and it has, has already been um, turned into law, and that is the Fair Work Commission's capacity to arbitrate or umpire a dispute. And I know when you've explained it to me previously, you've liked to use the example of Alan Joyce grounding the national carrier in 2012. Why is that a good example? That's a good example, Tim, because um, I think most people would remember um, you spoke about a dummy spit, and most Australians would remember that dummy spit from Alan Joyce, where uh, workers who were bargaining were taking low-level industrial action. Remember the pilots, for example, were wearing red ties and making in-flight announcements. Um, and in response to that low-level action, Alan Joyce and Qantas took very disproportionate action, and Alan Joyce grounded his entire fleet, um, which inconvenienced countless Australians and um, was quite a dramatic thing it's to a, it's do. It's a lockout. It's a lockout. It's, it's a reverse strike. He locked yes. out his own workers. Yes, he did. Um, and that was deliberately designed um, to end that bargain dispute because knowing um, the damage done to the national economy, that that would be a trigger for the Fair Work Commission to step in, end that bargain dispute, and then arbitrate. And what's changed is that the Fair Work Commission will be able to get involved, roll up its sleeves and arbitrate, or to use your word, umpire, uh, more easily than now. So yes. they'll be able to get in there and go, OK, I can see that you guys are, are really in an intractable thing, or you, you'll be able to really get in there and they'll be able to get in there and actually arbitrate, conciliate and find a solution rather than you know, employers doing stupid things like grounding airlines or locking out their workers. So hopefully it'll take some heat out of future disputes and get a resolution, get everyone back to work and happy. Yeah, that's true, Tim. So the, the threshold there, this will become law on the 6th of June, the, the thing we're talking about here where it gives the Commission the power to arbitrate, which goes back to the Commission's historic role of being able to conciliate and arbitrate industrial disputes. That's its historic mission. And so this, this provision 
um, allows the Commission to step in at a, at a much lower threshold than the, the Alan Joyce example we spoke about. And it allows the Commission to step in where the Commission regards the dispute as being unable to be fixed by the parties. And that will influence bargaining. It will be of assistance, particularly to workers who are bargaining their first agreement. Um, not so much our members, but other workers who are bargaining for the first time, for example, potentially there's an easier path for the Commission in those circumstances to ensure that those workers, at the end of the day, are covered by an enterprise agreement because we know that workers who are covered by enterprise agreements get better paying conditions. And so if we're talking about increasing the number of working Australians who are covered by an enterprise agreement to receive better paying conditions, better safety at work, allowing the Commission to step in and resolve disputes, arbitrate where the employer simply won't agree to a reasonable pay increase is a good thing. Yeah, they just use their muscle to sort of block so they can never get an EBA off the ground. So yeah. they're always on the award or they're always on the baseline industrial instruments. Okay, two more quick things before we get to what's coming, because I want to get to what is before the parliament that hasn't been passed now. The first one is around dodgy labour hire company EBAs. Tell us what, what the problem is here and what they've sort of solved or what they've done. They've sort of part solved a bigger problem, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, this has been a huge issue for, for my union, um, particularly over the last five, five to six, seven years or so. Um, there's been a steady stream of labour hire companies who have sought to get an enterprise agreement in place, but have done so by gaming the system. And the best example I can think of, and there are countless, one of the best examples would be OneKey, where OneKey negotiated an enterprise agreement um, with three employees, I think two of the three worked in construction and the other worked in manufacturing. That agreement ended up, after, in, a, in a very short period of time, ended up covering two to 3,000 coal mine workers. It's just unbelievable. I mean, I'm laughing. I shouldn't laugh. You, you shouldn't. But it's just terrible. You shouldn't laugh. And what's even more ironic is that the agreement was literally a bare bones agreement, whereby it was effectively the Black Coal Award with, I think from memory, what's, what was called actually a boot allowance. A boot being not something you wear on your foot, for us IR nerds, Tim, but a boot being the better off overall test. And so they were um, cheeky enough to have a boot allowance, which paid some like 1% above the weekly award rate of pay. So we're talking a couple of bucks extra um, at best, probably a dollar or so. That was deemed acceptable. We've had other examples whereby two or three employees, the company will effectively phoenix. So there'll be an established labour hire company with an agreement with the union that employs hundreds, if not thousands of workers. And the company will set up another company. And that new company will employ two or three employees, carefully selected of course, who will negotiate an agreement with the employer. Generally they'll do it, Tim, within a 21 day period, which is the minimum period that the legislation provides for. Mm. And those employees, be promised by the employer that they themselves won't work under that agreement on those terms and conditions, but they'll be given a sweetheart deal where they'll be paid above that agreement. Now, why would you do that? Because the employer then wants to go around and say to those employees covered by the other company, if you want to maintain your employment at this coal mine, you can sign on and work for this company under these rates of pay, which is a pay cut. So that sort of abuse where has, has been a huge problem and it's all about reducing the paying conditions of mine workers and all about reducing the bargaining power of 
um, union members. So it's not quite a solution to the same job, same pay issue, but it's attacking one of the issues or one of the subtypes of the same job, same pay problem. It's kind of giving you a toolbox, a legal toolbox with a hammer and a drill, but without a saw or spanners. So it's sort of, it can help you, but it's not a total solution to... No, no, it's not a total solution, but it is a step in the right direction. And it's also about ensuring the enterprise bargaining is conducted on a genuine basis. That is, that bargaining takes place between the employees, their union representatives, and the employee. But most importantly, Tim, that the cohort who are bargaining are the cohort who will work it under that agreement. will do it, yes. It is an abuse of the process to enable an employer to contrive a situation where they supposedly bargain um, with a small number of carefully selected workers who, will, who don't have skin in the game, who won't um, work under those conditions of employment. So um, it, is, it is about all those things that we mentioned, but also it's a, it is about ensuring that enterprise bargaining is conducted on a genuine and authentic Absolutely. basis. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's just a rort. It's basically it, it, a rort. And so they've plugged up one hole. Correct. Um, look, let's get to the last of the first tranche of laws, the things that have already been passed and are about to come into effect or have come into effect. Now, this next one makes me genuinely angry. I mean, I can't believe this was ever an issue or anyone would even attempt to do this. Uh, pay secrecy, what is it and what's changed? So pay secrecy is where the employer prohibits by way of policy or a contract of employment their employees talking or asking their colleagues about their rate of pay. And the government has introduced a reform there which enables employees to tell a co-worker what they're paid and also enables the employee to ask one of their co-workers what, what they're paid. It's a, it's a big issue for our members in the Pilbara where um, those in mine workers in the Pilbara are on different rates of pay, often not covered by collective agreement and the employer is able to benefit from workers not being able to be known what they're paid. It's also a big issue, Tim, for women in other industries. And um, it is good to see um, the government expressly prohibiting pay secrecy. It's funny, we spoke to some of the MEU members in the Pilbara who drive the big trains, the big, Mm. you know, seven kilometre trains with, you know, millions of dollars worth of ore in them. And they were saying it was like like a magic eight ball, the way they decided how much you were going to be paid. Everyone was on a different contract. Everyone was on a slightly different, just depended which way the wind was blowing or which manager you got or that's, whether the hut was air conditioned or not when you signed it. It was just it's totally arbitrary. That, that's right. And also things such as what your pay rise is. So if the pay rise is at the discretion of the employer, if you got a 5% pay increase versus someone who got a 2.5% pay increase, obviously, obviously if you are looking to address gender equity, for example, you know, knowing what the colleagues are paid, um, is helpful in that respect. I just think it's incredible that they would say you cannot discuss, like in Australia, mm. where mm. we're meant to have total freedom of speech, that they would say you cannot in your in the tea room, if you wish to, mm. talk about how much you're paid mm. with the person sitting next to you. I mean, it's just outrageous that mm. they would have even tried that on. All right, you're listening to the Mining and Energy Union podcast. My name's Tim Brunero. I'm sitting in the office, playing away today. I'm sitting in the office of National Legal Director Adam Walkerton. He's the legal director of the mighty MEU. He's the union's top legal eagle. We're at MEU HQ and we're breaking down the legal changes that the Albanese government has brought in and is bringing in uh, to help give working families a fair suck of the salve. All right, Adam, I want you to tell us about the laws which are currently before the parliament 
I think you're, you were telling me earlier that they've um, just been introduced to the Senate or they're in a Senate inquiry? Yeah, so Tim, where that's up to is that's, that's what us IR nerds call the second tranche. Um, so there's a bill currently before the federal parliament. Um, it's currently before a Senate, Senate committee. And it's the relatively uncontroversial aspects of the government's IR reform agenda. The first tranche, as I said, there was a bit of meat on that bone. And what's coming will also have a bit of meat on the bone. The most interesting thing of this second tranche is the reforms made to the coal long service leave scheme. Um, Coal miners have a very good long service leave scheme. It's a portable industry scheme. And the reform that's been introduced um, by the Albanese government and hopefully passed by the parliament, um, will ensure that casual coal miners receive the same entitlement as their permanent cohorts. Basically, Tim, what it allows for is it goes to the issue of of the accrual of long service leave and um, it fixes an inequity in the current system where because of the compressed rosters that our members work, casual coal miners were not receiving the same entitlement as their permanent cohorts. So the bill fixes that. It ensures that a casual coal miner um, will receive the same long service of entitlement as their permanent colleague as they, as they should. A huge thing for those people uh, directly affected, it might not be heaps of people, but they'll certainly be really happy. Okay, so now I want you to get out your crystal ball, Adam. There are some exciting new laws coming down the pipe relating to um, same job, same pay. Um, we know that you've been working on this stuff for a long time um, and we've certainly been talking about it on the podcast. Can we just set the scene with a quick grab from an interview we did uh, last year with Tony Burke around um, same job, same pay? Because this is a big issue for you, big issue for him and something that we're hoping the government will fix up very soon. Uh, let's hear from Tony. I was first told about the problem. I was told about it from from your union. That's where it was first raised with me. And so I understood the problem as an issue within mining. But as I've had this job, you know, being responsible for Labor Party's industrial relations policies now for you know, getting close to three years, I've realised the use of labour hire to undercut wages is happening everywhere. We've now systematically seen a lot of employers in a lot of industries now say, well, they don't like the conditions of the enterprise agreement that was negotiated, so they can bring people in closer to the award at a lower rate of pay and do the exact same job through labour hire. Which, if you, yeah, if you consider what enterprise bargaining's meant to be about, it's meant to be about a bargain that leads to an agreement. That's completely undermined if one of the parties to that agreement can just effectively walk away from it at any point in time via a labour hire firm. There you go. That's Tony Burke. Adam, same job, same pay. This would be great if they could solve this one. What is it? What is the problem? Can you give us a quick potted history of same job, same pay? Uh, I'll do my best, Tim. Um, Same job, same pay is a really important um, mechanism which would ensure that mine workers and other workers across the economy, that their wages aren't undercut by labour hire and labour hire who are not there for a temporary surge in work because of a sudden demand or um, to cover a short-term gap, which is what was labour hire's intended purpose. Um, but in circumstances where a labour hire workforce is embedded 
in the workforce. So you go to a mine, for example, and there might be 600 workers um, at that mine. You might find that 10 years ago, all of those 600 workers were full-time permanent employees employed by BHP Coal on a good union enterprise agreement. Whereas you go to a BHP mine at the moment, Tim, and you might find that there are 300 workers driving haul trucks, operating heavy equipment who are employed by BHP Coal on the BHP Coal Union Enterprise Agreement. But you'll also find another 300 employees who are employed by another BHP company, Operational Services, who are paid 30 to 40% less um, for doing the same job. And Tim, when I talk about the same job, um, on an open cut coal mine, um, what you'll find, for example, is a large number of employees who drive a haul truck, which is a big truck that is filled with coal, loaded by a digger, driven by the operator, and dumped at the receival bin. Um, on any given shift, you, you might find 20 to 30 to 40 um, haul truck drivers um, driving along the circuit. Each of those 20 to 30 to 40 haul truck drivers um, under same job, same pay, irrespective of whether their employees BHP, coal, or operational services, or any other labour hire company, Workpack, OneKey, whoever, Chandler McLeod, um, under same job, same pay, um, those workers will be on, on no worse than the same rate of pay. And it will ensure that labour hire isn't used um, to undercut wages and conditions, which is what it has been used for. It hasn't been used for its historic purpose of, as I say, um, covering a sudden ramp up in, in skill, in, in demand, um, or because there's some absenteeism. Or, or there's a specific job to do. Correct. So if I'm, you know, working in your house, so I've got a team of 10 people and I say, Adam, I've just got to bring, you know, some labour hire people in just to do a specific job for, for a couple of weeks. They're not going to be on the main agreement with us, they're on a different but, but it's being well and truly abused by your BHPs, by your Rio Tintos, your Anglo-American, your Glencores and so, and so on. It was funny, we spoke to Jenna Saunders who was um, up at the Blackwater mine. She said when she first got there, pretty much everyone was employed by BHP. She, has, she says now over 70% of the workforce is labour hire and they're earning a third less. That's right. I mean, it's just absolutely outrageous. It, it's funny, Tony Burke um, had something to say to us uh, last year about this. He was talking about um, the Morrison government's um, attitude to this same job, same pay issue. Here's what he had to say. The government described same job, same pay as a made-up issue. And, and I reckon that says it all. Like, if you're doing the same job as someone else, same experience on the same roster, and you're being paid $300 a week less, it doesn't feel like a made-up issue to you. Yeah, I bet it doesn't feel like a made-up issue if you're one of the people... Uh, who's working for a third less doing the same work than the people next to you. In fact, I think, Adam, the McHale Institute did a report recently that, that found it's about a billion dollars uh, that's not going into the pockets of those workers, um, that's not going into the news agents and grocers and, and hairdressers in, in Mackay or Musselbrook or Rockhampton, um, but instead is heading to New York and London and to those big boardrooms to be divvied up by executives of, of BHP and Anglo and, and, and Rio and Glencore and so on. Uh, my concern is that even when this is passed, there'll be an army of very, very well-paid, sharp-suited lawyers 
who were trying to find loopholes in it. I asked Tony uh, about that. If new rorts appear, and there'll be big legal teams trying to find a loophole, trying to find something that's missed in the new legislation, then we legislate again. Yeah, the big difference here is Labor believe that this practice is wrong and we want to legislate to get rid of it. Liberals and Nationals believe this is a made-up issue. And so for them, there's no problem to fix. What do you reckon about that, Adam? Well, what I'd say is a couple of things to that, Tim, is that I think you're right. Um, you will see um, you will see lawyers looking carefully into, this, into these provisions and trying to exploit um, exploit the provision. Absolutely. Um, obviously, what that means is that if we're talking same job, same pay, there is a need for really strong anti-avoidance provisions in the same job, same pay provision. Really needs to be a really good definition as to same job and same pay. Um, and there also needs to be a capacity of the Fair Work Commission to be able to resolve disputes that arise, um, guided by the principle um, that we spoke about, that workers who are um, doing the same job um, by a labour hire company should be on the same rate of pay. That will definitely be an issue. The second point I'd make, though, Tim, would be that if we're talking about loopholes, this, this, is, this is the loophole because, as we discussed, um, Labor High's um, intended purpose was to cover a, short, a shortfall in Labor because someone's sick or on long-term leave or because an employer requires to really ramp up its Labor because of a, a surge. Um, but as we've sort of been discussing, um, that's not what Labor High is used for anymore. So this will be hopefully a loophole that we can close, but of course the union will remain vigilant in ensuring, um, as we always do, that we put our best foot forward for our members. If I can give myself a bit of pat on the back, Tim, I think we've got a pretty good do it. legal team here ourselves. Um, and we'll also be trying to uh, look at this legislation and see where we can give maximum benefit to our members. Speaking of rorts and speaking of um, things employers told us they needed, let's talk about casuals and casualisation. Now, just like labour hire, employers said, look, sometimes we need some casuals because we have a retail business and around Christmas we need to bring a few extra people on. Or we yep. need some people to work on Saturday mornings. Yep. So we can't give them a full-time job. Would, would you mind if we, if we put them as casuals? We'll have this special kind of employee that's a casual. And, of course, what they did was abuse that, turn that into a rort, and made everyone casuals in some industries. It makes them easy to sack, means they can't stick up, uh, stick their hand up, especially in mining, which is such a dangerous industry around safety. Tell us about the casualisation rort, which is a related but similar rort to labour hire, um, and what you've been doing through the courts, you know, around casualisation. Yeah, Tim, look, you raise a good point because there absolutely are casuals who work in the Australian economy, but what you won't find or what you shouldn't find is a permanent casual. And that is someone, oxymoronic, someone who is described by their employer as a casual, often in their contract of employment, which the employer puts on the table and they are required to sign without any room for negotiation as a condition of getting their job. And you have a situation where in mining, for example, people are working to a roster, which is set well in advance. 
12 months in 12, advance 12, in, in 12, some cases. How months. can you be a casual if your, your roster said? That, that, that's right. And so the case you referred to, obviously two high-profile cases concerning Workpack employees, Paul Skeen and Robert Rosado. Um, and in those examples, um, particularly um, if we talk about Paul Skeen, um, he was an employee who was, being, who was a FIFO miner. Um, he was working seven days off and seven days on, seven days off. He was being flown up to site living in a camp accommodation during during the times on his seven-day swing when he wasn't required to work. Um, he was working to a fixed roster set 12 months in advance. Often these people are required to notify the mine operator when they want to take some leave. Often these people, the whole point of them being casual is they don't get paid leave, but they want to take some time off to attend a wedding or um, an important family celebration. They're required to notify um, the mine operator. Now, there's nothing casual about that arrangement. For all intents and purposes, a person who is working in the mining industry on a fixed roster, set well in advance, um, required to notify the mine operator of, of an intended day off, working day in, day out, isn't, isn't a proper casual. Now, this is where employers have attempted to muddy the waters, and I've got to hand it to them. It's, it's sly, it's tricky, and it's, it's a seductive argument. They say, but hold on, hold on. All these casuals are getting a loading. They're getting a 20% loading. So what you're effectively asking us to do is let them double dip. So they get the 20% loading, plus they get you know, the annual leave and sick leave, which a regular full-time person does. Now, it's a very seductive argument. I know it's bullshit, but can you explain why and how? I can, because even if, you, even if a loading is paid, those workers in the mining industry um, will be employed by, traditionally by, by a labour hire company. And even with the loading team, they'll be paid 30 to 40% less than the permanent employee of the mine. And another an argument the employers roll out is that it's a choice. These workers choose to be casual. Well, I've never met a coal mine worker or any other mining worker who chooses to be employed on an insecure basis to 30 to 40% less than, than the permanent employees who doesn't have access to paid leave, who doesn't have access to redundancy pay and can be let go at any point in time. You also raised a really interesting point about safety. What we're hearing, what we hear regularly, is that people who are employed um, by a labour hire company don't feel that they can speak up about safety. And that's a really important issue, Tim, um, in a dangerous industry such as the mining industry. If people don't have the confidence to speak up, um, that they feel that something is unsafe because they can be put off um, by the employer without any real explanation, without any real recourse, that is obviously a problem. And it's not just a problem for that employee, but it's a, a broader issue that um, is unacceptable. And it's not even, um, they don't even get the dignity of being sacked. Mm. They just stop being rostered, which is the biggest slap in the face mm. because they're casuals. And, you know, as you say, and when I had this light bulb moment, this aha moment, when I realised or was told, I suppose, I think by your predecessor, Alex, that actually these casuals, and I dare say this is happening in other parts of the economy, they're not, they're not on the same rate of pay, even with 20% more, they're not earning the same as other people at the mine or at the workplace. But of course, they can be sacked so easily or just not rostered on. It's a total rot. Um, you've done a lot of work on this. You've gone all the way to the high court. You've you've had to engage and you know, you know a lot of legal other legal eagles. You've had to spend a lot of your own time. We asked Tony Burke about this um, last year, and he said 
Well, explain what the Morrison government did, because you actually won in the High Court, or the Federal Court, I think it was, and got some great rulings. And then, uh, well, Tony Burke will explain. When the Federal Court decision had come down in Rosato, giving rights to casual workers who were te- technically being described by their bosses casuals, but in reality were being working as permanents, well, the government just put up legislation to completely take those casuals' rights from them. That if the employer says you're a casual, it doesn't matter how you're treated, doesn't matter how you're rostered, you're a casual. Oh, that's great, isn't it? So if BHP and Rio and Glencore didn't have enough muscle in terms of money and lawyers, you beat them in the courts and then the Morrison government, their mates in government, just came and used the full heft and weight of the government to re-legislate. (laughs) That must have been an unpleasant experience. It was certainly a tough day at the office, Tim. Um, but we're obviously hopeful um, that as part of this tranche coming that we can address that rort um, and that um, there still will be a place for casuals, but there certainly shouldn't be a place for permanent casuals. Just because you're an IR lawyer, I know this doesn't strictly relate to the MEU really, but because you just know this space, I, I might ask your opinion. You know the gig economy we hear so much about, Uber and all these sorts of you know, uh, contracted employment, casual employment, will this affect those people? Well, look, you raise a good question, Tim, because our delegates um, are often asked by their family members or friends for advice or assistance about their own workplace issues. And when I'm speaking to our delegates, I'll often um, discuss other matters that might not be directly relevant to mining energy workers because they'll have kids or family members who are working in other parts of the economy. And the gig economy is a a good example where effectively um, it's been a free-for-all. There's been no proper labour standards um, that have been imposed um, in respect of workers who are delivering your food, um, who are driving your places, and also it's spreading, as I understand, into other um, areas such as the care economy, NDIS, aged care, things of that nature where people are given no choice but to accept some work by way of an app. And um, it is very good to see the government um, introducing reforms to ensure that it's not a free-for-all, that there is some decency and there is proper labour standards applied um, to to those areas of the economy. Um, So it's not such an issue at this point in time for mining and energy members, um, but it it is a good reform and it is form part, does form part of what's coming down the legislative pipe. They've got to get in there. I mean, we saw only recently that mob milk run, which was mm. a kind of delivery service, kids on bikes that bring stuff to you, food and groceries. They, they actually did the right thing. They actually, using the regulations that, uh, you know, currently in effect, they gave people jobs and so on, and they went bust. And it's mm. just such a good example of why the government needs to get in there, get some regulations and get some wage parity and get an even playing field... Mm. So it's not about how much you can exploit your workers, it's about how efficient your business is and how good your ideas are, um, and you're not just using the fact that you're paying people very little. Uh, You're listening to the MEU uh, podcast. Uh, We're almost at the end, the third tranche. uh, We're looking at the crystal ball. uh, To use um, Adam's language, the uh, third tranche, the third bit, the third group of laws that are coming down the pipe, the last element of that is the criminalising wage theft. I mean, this is just... uh, I mean, this will be delicious if it gets up and we see people who 
willfully steal people's wages actually do some hard time. Yeah, look, Tim, it's been a really big issue across the economy. We've seen a number of examples of really prominent businesses who have deliberately been underpaying their employees. So it is good to see the government cracking down on it and it is putting a, putting a tougher and appropriate penalty upon examples where the employer deliberately um, underpays its employees. Um, we're talking about hospitality, agriculture and, and all kinds of different areas. Uh, just finally on this third tranche, stronger protection for people who are discriminated against. And I'm thinking here about union delegates who have been punted by their employer. They're going to get some decent protections. I think you've got a really good example, a, a roll gold example of a BHP or BMA picket line in Queensland where this might apply. Yeah, this is a, there was a couple of high profile losses. Once again, a couple of tough days at the office, Tim. Um, where unfortunately the laws didn't provide proper protections for people who were engaging in, in union activity. And the reality is, Tim, is that um, being a union delegate um, is a tough job. And it's not well, a job... you don't job. get paid to start off with. You, you don't get paid. <laughs> um, and it is, it is a tough job. And it is, a, it is a role that you take on voluntarily because you are interested in um, improving a lot of you and your workmates. And... Um, and it also doesn't always make you the most popular person that work with your employer. And so the law does need to ensure that there's proper protections for people who are engaging in legitimate, lawful union activity. And the example you speak about went all the way to the High Court, where the union was engaged in lawful industrial action at a BHP mine in central Queensland. Um, one of our members was on um, a community assembly line and was holding up a sign um, a union endorsed sign at the front of that mine and um, he was dismissed and that case went all the way to the High Court and our argument was that he was engaged in legitimate union activity. He was holding up a sign promoting and expressing the views of the union during a lawful, a lawful strike and he was dismissed and ultimately the finding of the law was that the, the person who made the decision to determinate, the decision maker, had disassociated the outcome, i.e. dismissal, from the protected attribute, i.e. the union activity. And the courts, in their infinite wisdom, accepted that the subjective reason of that decision maker was enough to ensure there was no contravention. There was another example that springs to mind as well, Tim, of another of our members who was working at an underground coal mine um, on the south coast of New South Wales. That member took... Um, periods of sick leave, all within his EA entitlement. So he'd done the right thing, he's notified the employer, he's entitled to do what he provided certificates if required. And he was, he was moved from a weekend shift to a weekday shift, which, re which resulted in a significant reduction in earnings. And he, the stated reason for him being moved was because he was unreliable. Now, ultimately, the full court of the federal court decided that there was no contravention against that employer, South 32, um, because um, the decision maker had disassociated the outcome, i.e. the sanction imposed, from the protected attribute, the taking of sick leave. And we talk about the pub test. Um, the pub test would obviously be there, is that that person suffered a reduction in earnings because he took sick leave, whereas the courts, because of a clever legal argument, we discussed loopholes, um, this is what clever lawyers do. Um, they tease words, um, they get out the microscope and they're able to persuade the court um, to say that as long as the decision maker can disassociate 
the outcome from a protected attribute, that there is no contravention. And that needs to change to ensure that union delegates in particular and other workers who experience discrimination at work have proper protections because as a civilised society, um, we should be ensuring that people aren't discriminated against because of um, a whole bunch of attributes which are protected at law, but also because workers are engaging in lawful um, union activity. Isn't it incredible that they, they, they want to sack someone for this reason, they come up with another reason, and they manage to push the argument. I mean, and I find it incredible, someone who has written something on a sign, that first example you gave, it's like we were talking before about pay secrecy. Mm. These big companies, first of all, they don't want you to talk in the tea room about how much you get paid. The most basic you know, bit of conversation you could probably have with someone because it's so important to your life. And then they're sitting there taking notes and working out why they're offended by something you've written on a sign. Mm. I mean, it's just incredible. Um, just finally, let's talk about that fourth tranche. Uh, this is the National Labor Hire Scheme. This is something that's been tried, I think, for about five years in Queensland. The five-year anniversary has just come up. They've tried it in Victoria, and I think you say, to some extent, some industries in South Australia. What's the deal, and what will a, what will a national labour hire scheme or, or registration scheme look like? So, Tim, um, once again, same as the WASEF, there's been some really egregious examples um, of, of labour hire providers in agriculture, um, meat processing, um, other examples where um, those workers have been treated atrociously and, and not in a way that we would accept or should accept um, in a civilised, democratic country. And so a national labour hire scheme is trying to ensure that um, if you operate a labour hire company that you need a licence to do so. And um, the, the, as you pointed out, there's a scheme in Queensland, Victoria, and also a limited one in South Australia. Um, the government's proposing a national or a nas national scheme, um, which we support um, because uh, we would anticipate that as a condition of obtaining a licence and maintaining a licence, that the labour hire provider would have to maintain proper industrial standards. And that will be of benefit to our members because there's been a whole lot of things we've spoken about today, um, whether it's same job, same pay, whether it's the definition of casuals, whether it's the abuse of the bargaining system, but the common thread for all of that um, is a core issue that we'll always push um, with every ounce of our energy, which is the promotion of good, permanent jobs. And um, that is something that, that we strive for. And, and a national labour hire scheme uh, will be another um, step in the right direction of ensuring that people are treated properly and with decency at work. And it will be of benefit to our members um, who, work, who work in the mining, mining and energy industries but it'll also be, as I say, of really important benefit um, to those workers who you know, may be coming in and, and a migrant worker um, and exposed to shocking exploitation, which is something we, we definitely shouldn't accept in this country. Well, Adam Walkerton, National Legal Director of the mighty MEU, uh, thank you so much for letting me bust into your office with my mic and you know, get the benefit of all your legal experience and get your take on the laws that have been passed and that are coming down the pipe. I really appreciate you having a quick yak to us. Cheers, Tim.